Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. There are many different paths you can take, but there's only one road to Atlanta. Drive deep out to left field. He clubbed it. Brady twisting and turning, looking up and giving up. It's a home run for Danby Swanson. Flair out towards shallow right. That's big trouble. Albies going back. He dives and he makes the catch. What a play, Ozzie Albies. Swanson is headed for three. He'll try for it inside the parker. Relay throw comes toward the plate. He'll score standing, and it's his second inside the park home run of the season. This is your weekly podcast dedicated to the Atlanta Braves farm system. Follow the show on Twitter at Road, the number two, Atlanta. Now, hit the road with your hosts, Eric Cole, Gaurav Vidak, and Garrett Spain. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Road Atlanta, a podcast devoted solely to the Braves farm system and Braves prospects. I am one of your hosts, Eric Cole. You may recognize me by for my work over on Talking Chop, or on the previous iteration of the Road to Atlanta, which was separate from our Talking Chop stream, which is now kind of sort of a part of. Uh, uh, Or you've seen me on Twitter, at Leprechaun with a K, where you'll see me tweeting about Major League Baseball, Minor League Baseball. Usually it's all Braves related, but sometimes it's basically whatever is popping into my head at any given moment. Joining me this evening is one Matt Powers, as we kind of take, this is going to be a bit of a shorter show. Uh, We're going to do a little bit of kind of talking about minor minor league top performers. And we're going to kind of get our final thoughts in about what we think is going to happen with the draft before the draft on Monday. I'm sure there's going to be some sort of other episode of of either t- doing work on the Talking Chop podcast or on this one where we kind of do a draft retrospective. But we feel like we've gotten, given everyone, a good basis of, of knowledge as to kind of what to expect with the draft. So this is going to be kind of our final thoughts uh, going into it. So, Matt, um, first things first, I want to talk a little bit about some of the top performers we've had. Who's, who's a couple guys that you think have really been kind of showing out lately? I know he comes up every single week, but how can you not have him come up yet again? Trey Harris, I mean... He's been insane. There, There's just no logical reason why he's in Rome right now. There's nothing. All he does is produce. And it's not like there's any flaws with his character. It's not like he's too young for the next level. There is just nothing more he can do to get pushed up a level at this point. Yeah, I'm kind of at the point now where I'm starting to think that in terms of pure production, uh, maybe not future like future raw potential, but you start to wonder why someone like a Sean Michelle or an Izzy Wilson, why at the very least they would lose playing time so they could give a guy who's hitting the cover off the ball and doing a lot of things really well, why you wouldn't give him a chance, giving him a chance to get some playing time over some of those guys? Because let's be honest with ourselves. We love the tools that Izzy Wilson brings to the table, but you hear whispers about kind of, you know, whether or not he's had, you know, some work ethic issues or, you know, having some issues with like, you know, being coachable and doing things the, the way that they need to be done to be as a professional. And then you have Sean Michelle who, you know, again, it's nothing we have 
like personally against these guys, but when you have someone performing this well and those guys are clogging up the outfield spots in the lower levels, it, it doesn't feel that fair. And you start wondering what, what, what this guy's supposed to do and how he's going to start reacting to just being kept down in Rome for no reason. Really, there, there's just nothing I can even think of to come up with the logical reason. The closest thing that I could come up with is the lack of depth in the system. They feel like they're going to have to put up another Paraguate or Florentino who clearly don't belong at that level but are just the options available for them at this point. And I'm thinking maybe that might have something to do with it. And even that's not a great explanation because you can just go out and sign a minor league free agent. Yeah, I think it's what we're going to see happen is – and this is what happens every year, right? Is like we're going to have the draft and the Braves are going to know who they have and a general idea of where they – want to start players and once they have that set we might start to see and this again this is generally how it happens each year is we're going to see a round of minor league releases it's just the thing that happens it sucks because a lot of these guys are like you know minor league journeymen and you or, or guys that have been in the organization for a while but maybe they're just not they're not major league prospects uh, and you kind of start to see them getting you know uh, getting the roster shaved down so that way they have room for all these guys especially if you're going college heavy which it sounds like the braves could be um that 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 would be something I could see where that once that roster trimming happens is when Trey gets moved up, maybe some of these other pieces that haven't really been working out or maybe just don't belong in the system anymore, uh, you know, trim those pieces off and then it kind of starts backfilling with all these draft picks. That's that's the best explanation I have because honestly, I just, I just think I feel like Trey's been ready for the next level for like three weeks now, and I can mm-hmm. see holding him there for like a month. I mean that 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 makes some sense, but now he, he's still hitting like close to. Like 400 with like a crazy OPS, doing everything well. You, you just you have to get you have to see if he's going to be a real thing because you know he's not the, the youngest guy in the world. You don't want to hang around and lose an entire year in low A, uh, and to, and to only to find out that you know he could have been something for you down the line if you had just gotten to moved him along a little faster. But that's just me. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple pitchers have been doing really well. Uh, Tucker Davidson and and Kyle Muller have both been really really good. Uh, that Mississippi rotation is weird because the whole the whole staff seemingly couldn't throw strikes for a while, which I thought was hilarious. But you're kind of starting to see that Ian Anderson's still having some issues with walks, but Kyle Muller and Tucker Davidson are both are trimming down a lot of that, and they're really starting to show out a little bit. Tucker Davidson in particular, I don't think we've been giving him enough credit, uh, mainly because I feel like we got burned a little bit last year because he had not the best season in Florida. But they bumped him up to double A. We're like, okay, we'll see what happens. All he's done is post a 1.49 ERA in 10 starts. Bat, their batters are only hitting 184 against him. He's had a, bunch, had a good number of walks to start the season, and he's still going to walk some guys. But things have gotten better towards that end, and he's now he's starting to strike out more guys is the biggest thing. So he's been pretty impressive. And Kyle Muller, is, like his last two starts have been really, really good. The velocity seems to be not only coming back, but it's actually better than it was when he was drafted. And, you know, the, he, he's really funny on social media, as is the Mississippi Braves kind of like chronicling how good he's been. Uh, but those are two guys. Do you have any, any thoughts you want to share on those two? I mean, Muller has been so good that he, and this needs to be mentioned, that he was the number one prospect on the Baseball America prospect hot sheet this past week in all of baseball. So clearly his performance is being noticed by others and not just us. I mean, Obviously, the walks were a huge issue, and I talked to people outside of the Braves organization who were very, very concerned about Mueller earlier this year because the command was just so erratic at that point. But 
He's just done a complete 180 since then. His last four starts, he's walked two batters each. No more, no less, but just two batters each. And every single one of those starts is between five and two-thirds and seven innings. So it's not like you're talking short in, short outing and just two walks. But the stuff is there. The performance is there. The command has come back from a point where there was reason to worry. I mean, he walked four, four, and six in his first three starts. So at least he's back to exactly where you'd hope he would have been. And he's impressive. He might be just behind Ian Anderson at this point on that Mississippi roster for pitching in prospect status yeah. at this point. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair assessment just because there's so much upside with him still. Um, I mean, Tucker, it's not like Tucker's done anything wrong. He's actually, like, statistically, he's probably the best on that whole roster. Uh, and who knows? Maybe he, I mean, it's pitch, pitching pitchers are weird, and you will often see, you know, the guys that you don't necessarily expect to end up being to excel in the major leagues, for example. But I agree that in Mueller's case, the, the thing about Mueller that I've always kind of wondered is when you have those really big guys, like he, and he's a big, strong, tall dude, is that they have to, to do a work a lot harder to stay mechanically consistent. Because like when they're a little bit off, it's almost like it's it's more jarring just because of like how, what they're having to, the the amount of things they have to have under control and how hard those things are in terms of their body. And you you'll see these like these larger guys often struggle with either struggle with command throughout their careers or having to constantly kind of course correct as they move on. And again, he's he's in great shape. It's not anything like that. It's just kind of making sure being mechanically consistent and doing what they want to do to stay to stay online to the plate, to or to throw strikes the way they want to. Overall, I'm I'm interested to see how he continues to do. Is whether or not like it's just like it was just like a course correction that needed to happen at the beginning of this year because we saw what happened when he was in Danville. Is like his mechanics weren't right at all. He wasn't throwing hard either. And, you know, there, there might have been some injury stuff there, but what I want to see is kind of a full season of what he can do. Like, he was great last year. I want to see, like, back-to-back seasons where the majority of the time he had his mechanics in order. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Christian Pache because... Actually, I just wanted to throw out Muller got a chance to hit the other day and went two for two with a double. Which <laughs> that guy could hit. He was proud of that, too. Uh, oh, yes, he was. Yes, he was. He can rake, actually. Yes. He's, he's he's one of those guys where you don't necessarily have mind in a National League lineup. You don't mind him hitting. Uh Maybe he can get some pinch hitting, pinch hitting appearances along with Freed. Uh, uh, that that was hilarious. Freed getting a pinch hitting hit and actually like roped a line drive up the middle. Um, anyway, but I did I did want to talk a little bit about Christian Pache. Um, this battle between him and Drew Waters is really funny to me, just because like it really does feel like one week Drew Waters will go wild and then the next week Pache will and then it just goes back and forth. Uh, this week, it's been more Christian Pache than Drew Waters, and it's not a, not a knock on Drew at all. Uh, but he's riding a, right now. Pache is riding a five-game hitting streak. He roped, he na- crushed a home run. It was a line drive. It like it didn't look like it was like one of those high, you know, went 500 feet ones, but it came off the bat at what is rumored to be 117 miles an hour, which is kind of insane, especially for it's him. Worth watching. Yeah, it's he he. It, it's a rope. Like the the camera barely has time to like switch over until you see the ball going over the fence. He really hit it hard. Um, it's also worth mentioning, when we recorded the show last week, he was down to 278 that night. He is up to 302 in batting average right now. That's how hot he's been. 
Yep. Had had like a four game, a four hit game like immediately after the show last week. Uh, and has had like three multi hit games over his last five. And he had the, again, had the home run. He's drawn walks here and there. Again, we're not calling like big walk numbers, but he has, he has 15 walks in like roughly 200 plate appearances. And honestly, that's a pretty big jump over what he was doing. So he's also got two of those walks within his last three games alone. So obviously very short sample size, but. Even while he's red hot, he's taking some walks, which is always big because in the games directly before these, this recent stretch, even though he was hitting, he wasn't taking many walks. So it's good to see him starting to take some more walks again. Uh, agree wholeheartedly. Um, I guess I have to, I'm like congratulately obligated at this point to highlight Hayden Deal. Uh, I, I just, all I want to say this about Hayden, uh, I wrote an article re- this past week about him. Uh, we're talking about the value of having a cutter and why that really helps against right-handed pitching. I wrote that with Ivan, who doesn't, I wish I could, I wish I had a Twitter account that I could point people to for him, but he doesn't have one. Um, and, you know, kind of how well he's done this year and like what that kind of forecasts for the future. But I'll just say this. He had a six inning, uh, start today where he gave up two runs and like two walks and like five strikeouts. It might be his worst start of the year. And, that that is true. That uh, like two run runs, six innings is like your worst start of the season. Speaks a lot to like what kind of year that guy's having. Uh, he's a guy that I think needs to move up as well. But it's that that Mississippi rotation is really tricky to move into right now, just because there's so many arms. Um, but I, again, not going to dwell there too long. But he's definitely been a guy that we've been kind of keeping an eye on. Um, I do want to run down some injuries really quick. Uh, Matt Withrow, he's not injured. He actually came back from an injury. He hasn't pitched in, he hadn't pitched in a long time. Uh, he's down in Florida now, and he's, he's pitching pretty well. And I'm really happy because he's a really nice guy. And he was a pretty promising prospect for us. But this was before he got hurt. He was like kind of like the back end of our top 30, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, back into the top 30. And even after that, he was on the just miss list for quite a while, too. So he's been, even when he wasn't on the top 30, he's been right around it. Yeah. Again, older older prospect. He was he was he was already a college arm, and you kind of wonder how much more how much more time he has before he has to you know figure out if he's going to make this a career or not. But he's really worked hard to come back from injury, and we're happy that he's he is back. Uh, Corbin Klaus has been out for a little while with some shoulder short shoulder soreness issues, uh, but it doesn't sound like it's anything major, and he's actually going to be back relatively soon, is my understanding. Um, Justin D. I, I, he's missed a little bit of time. It's with a cut, right? Like he had a cut in the game or something like that, and he's you know just wanting to make sure it doesn't open back up. I'm pretty I sure believe, that's right. Yeah, I believe that's it. I think yeah. it's just a very short time out, and he'll be back shortly. Yeah, uh, I, he's another guy that I liked a lot. I, I do think it's really funny that as guys have been graduating, the first two guys that have been added to Pipeline's top 30 are Justin Dean and Trey Harris. Uh, I probably would have flipped the order on those, even though I like both of those guys, but I think I like Trey more. Um but both I, those guys. I like that order myself. I think that Harris is the better player right now. I think Dean has a little bit more still left in the tank. He, they're both really strong guys, and I think that like mm-hmm. power, the power numbers for Dean, I think are actually going to be better than one would think they'd be, especially with the major league ball. Mm-hmm. I think but Dean's also because he's coming from smaller competition. He's still adjusting to the pro competition a little bit more. Well, Harris had four years in at Missouri, so I think Harris, for him, it's a little easier at present to adjust to low A because they said the SEC is a lot like what you face in low A, and the way Harris is playing, 
it's obviously showing that. And I do think that the SEC is a little bit behind low A, but I think overall the level of competition isn't significantly more. But I do think that does help Harris's numbers just a little bit. While Dean is coming from Lenore Ryan, so. Well, I get that, but and I also think that there's an upside argument to be made for Dean just defensively. Because, I mean, Harris's value is almost strictly with his value. It's not like he's terrible in the outfield. Uh, I'm not going to say that. And he, like, he gets around. But I think Dean could be a legitimately a good defender in the outfield and probably could play all three outfield positions. So you could, it'd be pretty easy to convince me of, of like, him being, like, more upside type as opposed to Harris, who's kind of, you know, his value is going to be tied to his bat. Um, let's see who else we got here. Uh, Tristan, we've, I've been asked a couple times about this and I wasn't sure if we had mentioned it on the podcast, so I wanted to make sure we put it out there. Uh, Tristan Beck's been out for a while. Uh, he was the, uh, a relatively high pick for the Braves last, last year in the draft, uh, out of Stanford. Uh, he's been out for a while with a groin injury. He left, he left to start with a groin injury and we haven't heard anything new on that front, but he's been, it's worth saying out loud that he had a groin injury and he's, he's been out for a while and we have no reason to believe that he would be, you know, would not be back anytime soon. Luis Gohara is still missing. Um, I asked, I was actually credentialed for the Braves game, uh, the first, the first game against the Nationals this week. And I asked around some of the reporters, some of the people that were around, some of the officials that were around. And all I'm hearing is that he's dealing with some issues. Some of it's health related. I think some of it may be personal related as well. Um, uh, and it doesn't sound like, it didn't sound like to me, I didn't really pry too much about it. It doesn't even sound like he's throwing right now. Uh, and we're going to treat him like a prospect until we kind of know otherwise as to whether or not what his plans are for being on the major league roster. But for the moment, all we really know is that he's been dealing with some shoulder issues and he had been injured. But there are also maybe some other things going on that we're not 100% certain about, and I don't really want to speculate beyond the fact that there might be just more to it than just a shoulder injury. Um, but we just don't really have any news, and it doesn't sound like he's throwing right now. Uh Matt, what what do you think's going on with AJ Graffinino? <laughs> I, I, I I don't know. I have no clue. It's very weird. He played the first game, had all of one at bat, and then he ended up getting hurt. It's been a bit of a mystery injury. He has not returned. It's been two months, and we were without seeing him. Last spring at Washington, he was hurt and missed a bunch of time with an injury that I don't think was quite as severe as it was made out to be, and he missed some time after turning pro with an injury that is rumored to also not be quite as severe as the amount of time that he missed. So he's he's got an injury history, and he does have a history of missing more time than what one might expect for what his injuries are. So I'm wondering if that's playing into this at all right now. I mean, maybe uh, it's we just don't. I just don't, the problem with with just kind of Florida in general is that it's really hard to get any information out of their period. Um, and we couldn't even, we don't even have video to go on and say this is what it looks like happened on the play he was injured. You know what I mean? Uh, when you see, when you have injuries like that, it could be any number of things, especially the position he was playing. Uh, I mean, he, he could, it could have been on a throw, it could have been on a slide, it could have been running, running the bases, it could have been any number of things. But I'm hopeful that we get to see him soon, uh, because he's a guy that we liked a lot, but right now, since he hasn't played at all, like, I'm not even sure how we could, like, rank him in the top 30 at all, not because we don't like him, but because one, we don't know the severity of the injury or what kind of injury it is. And two, it's like, you don't really know what he's going to be like kind of coming off an injury and being out that long. So it's a tough, it's a tough situation for us. Cause it's just, it, in this particular case, we haven't been able to find good information on him. 
uh, regarding like what's going on with him and when we can expect him to see him back. But I hope he comes back soon because he's really fun to watch in the field. And you know, he was actually putting some real numbers out with the bat as well. I, just, I kind of hope that once he gets back, um, we'll kind of get a better sense of the, kind of what he looks like. Uh, CJ Alexander, uh, we've mentioned this before, uh, had, had elbow surgery. The, the original timeline was four to six weeks. I think that, so that means sometime in June, he's supposed to be scheduled to come back, assuming no setbacks. And we have no reason to believe he has any, had any setbacks. As well, he's another guy we like a lot, and I kind of want to see him get back into the swing of things happy and healthy because he didn't look particularly right when he was in in Mississippi. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Okay, now we've got the, the kind of the rundown of the prospects out of the way. Let's talk draft. So... Um, we were talking about kind of how we wanted to handle this in terms of like beforehand. And the best way I feel like we can is we're going to give you guys some names to be thinking about. And then we're going to talk a bit about why we think they are or are not in play for the number nine pick. The the, num- the names we're going to be discussing are uh, Arizona State outfielder Hunter Bishop, prep outfielder Corbin Carroll, UNLV shortstop Bryson Stott, Baylor catcher Shay Langoliers, TCU pitcher Nick Lodolo, Juco pitcher Jackson Rutledge and West Virginia West Virginia pitcher uh, Alex Manoa, as well as high school prep pitcher Daniel Espino. Let's just kind of start in that order, Matt. So what do you think the odds are that Hunter Bishop is there at nine? I'd probably give that a 75% chance. I think Bishop is getting to eight. I'm pretty sure of that fact. It's does Texas take him or do they let him pass? I don't think they take him right now, even though they were long rumored to be taking him. I mean, his performance is significantly down and I don't believe we've really gotten into that yet. Uh, but he has hit very well and the 50% strikeout rate over the last month as well as really struggling against Pac-12 pitching, especially Friday and Saturday starters over the last month has helped bring him down. So I think he'd be there at nine. I think, obviously, his upside would have him in play for the Braves. I think they're really considering him. I'm not sure they actually take him because I think he's a bit of a lottery ticket that you're either going to get a superstar or a guy who doesn't make it out of double-A because the strikeouts and the hit risk are very real with him. The power is also very large. 
he's got great athleticism. I mean, this is a kid that was a Division One football recruit in the Pac-12. He's got some great physical gifts. There's also some production history, lack of, before this year. So he's an interesting guy. I think he's a lottery ticket. I think if I was San Francisco, I'd be more interested in a guy like this than the Braves because they don't really have many bats around and can really use that lottery ticket to potentially get an elite upside guy. The Braves would have to be very confident that they could fix the issues with Bishop's swing and keep the power in that swing to be able to take him at nine. So I, I tend to agree. I think that if the Braves take Bishop at nine, then what you're assuming is that they kind of they they know what the risk is with him in terms of the swing and miss. And they feel like that they know what they would need to do to at least minimize that risk. There's going to be risk with any prospect. I'm going to go ahead and tell you now. There's like, there are very few sure things in any draft. I think really the only sure thing in this draft is Adley Reutschman and he's still a catcher and like weird injuries and things like that happen to catchers all the time. So it's, it's worth mentioning that there's risk with any player. In Bishop's case, there seems to be some more risk. But if you have done your homework and you say, Hey, you know what? We feel like we can teach him X, Y and or Z and this will result in kind of cutting down the strikeouts, then you have a guy that probably should be a top five pick. If you if you know for certain that you can – there's something that you know how to fix and will fix. The, the bigger issue I have is that the, I think that the top six teams are going to be operating within one tier of players, right? And then you have seven through like 10 or 11-ish where there's going to be some players that may or may not be available. And the two teams ahead of the Braves and the Reds and the Rangers – could both do some really weird stuff because the Reds need pitching. And they're not hurting for bats in their organization. What they need are guys who actually can throw strikes as starters. And that makes me think they would go with for like a Lodolo or for a Jackson Rutledge, you know, or even a Manoa. But they seem to consistently draft bats with the noticeable exception of Hunter Green. And I feel like they got burned on that just because he's, he's now he's out with injury, but between that and the, all the rumors about Texas trying to do some underslot stuff, it makes me really unsure as to who's going to be really available. And if the if if Texas decides they're going to go underslot, but the Reds, you know, kind of the, the Reds could still t- end up taking Bishop anyway. Uh, ultimately, it comes down to what I think, and I think you're right about seventy percent chance, seventy percent chance that Hunter Bishop's there. Uh, I'd be personally per- personally be happy to take him, uh, mainly because I feel like if the Braves are taking him, then they feel like they understand him and what they would need to do to fix him. Um, I will say, though, for the next guy, I think, and this is it's very close for me, the upside for Bishop, I think, is higher. But I think I would prefer Cor- Corbin Carroll because the floor isn't quite as bad, and he really interests me as a prospect because the hit tool is so good that I feel like if he like puts on any appreciable amount of strength that he could end up being like a consistent performer for a long time. What do you think? I think Carroll is probably the number two guy on my board realistically. We're going to talk about the number one guy, and I'm sure most of you already know who that is, but the most realistic pick of the names that I'm hearing to get there would be Carroll. I think he's easily a plus hitter. I think it's a 60 grade. The hit tool is beyond what you'd expect from a high schooler, and it might be a 65 could grow into a 70 in time. He's that good at just hitting the ball, making 
hard contact with the barrel of the ball and just driving it all over the field. He knows how to take good at-bats, wait on pitches, just make contact with the ball and put it in play. I mean, he's got good speed, so even though that doesn't really help the bat directly, it indirectly helps because he's able to beat out some infield hits. I think he's probably a guy who's going to hit 15 to 20 homers a year, but he's also going to rack up tons and tons of extra base hits with his gap power. He might be a crazy quick DO. He's quick, too. He he is, and that's going to also help the doubles and triples just get up there. I can see him putting up Craig Biggio-like extra base hit totals. And if you're not familiar enough with Craig Biggio, I mean, he was a guy who regularly hit that 35-40-plus double total. Obviously, steroid era, but not not that uh, accusing Biggio of steroids, but in that era, that's just how the game was played. But I could see... Carroll doing something like that, even though he's not the biggest guy in the world, he's pretty strong for his size, and I think he does have some room to add weight. The comps on him are Ellsbury, Benintendi, and one that I like a little bit that I haven't actually gotten anyone else to really completely agree on is Alex Verdugo from the Dodgers. I think he's a more tooled-up version of Verdugo. I think he's a guy with a little bit more power than Verdugo has. I mean, they're both a similar size, not much power overall, and just great ability to make contact. I think that's where that comp for me is coming from. Of course, Carroll's a guy that's going to play in center field and stay there and just play good defense. I've also talked to some guys out on the West Coast who've seen Carroll, and Every single one of them that has actually seen him live has just raved about what he does at the plate and just the at-bats he takes and the way he hits the ball and just how frequently he's making that hard line drive contact. So that's the two bats that I think Matt and I can agree that if we're taking a bat at nine, those are the two guys that we would be particularly in on. Uh, if they, if they deviated from the, if they took a bat but it wasn't one of those two guys, like it, it depends a lot on one if it's like an underslot signing and two like it, it might surprise me a bit because I really think that they like those two guys. Um, two bats that are kind of in the neighborhood uh, and have been at times connected or in one's case hasn't been directly connected, but we know that they've kind of checked in on him at the very least is Bryson Stott, the shortstop from UNLV, and Shea Langoliers from Baylor. I know I know that you particularly aren't a big fan of the Langoliers pick. Um, so kind of give, give us your reasoning as to why you necessarily wouldn't pick either of those two guys over the others. I actually would take Scott. I, the only thing is I don't think the Braves are really in on him. I have not heard his name connected at all with the Braves, both from my sources that would be around anywhere. Uh, I can't really say too much more, but his name is not rumored with the Braves at all. I mean, I know that they've definitely checked in on him because you have to check in on every single one of these players just to see what they are, but there's nothing that really connects them. And I, I know that there are some that are very, very high on Stott that would even put him in the top five to six or seven players in the draft ahead of some of the guys that are in that top six here. So there are people that, and they do the same thing with Carroll as well, that 
you'll see Carroll in that top six tier ahead of some of those guys that are going to be drafted in the actual top six. Those two are really the only two other than my other guy down a little bit lower, but we'll get into him a little bit later. Um, Whitstock, he's a potential all-star at shortstop. He's going to hit. He's going to hit for power. He's going to steal some bases. He's going to play good quality defense. There's a lot to like. I just don't think he's connected with the Braves. And with Langoliers, I don't, I think that they liked him and I think they still do. I just don't think that they like him with the ninth pick. I think he's probably a guy that I'd put in that 13 to 17 range in this draft. If you were picking on talent, he's going to go higher than that most likely just because college catchers seem to rise. But his talent probably belongs there. And this has nothing to do with the handmade injury that cost him some time earlier this spring. I would have been there on him heading into the season. The defense is great. He's a good catch and throw guy who can block the ball. He's got great pitch framing ability. He's got a strong arm. There's a lot to like about him defensively. I'm just not sold that the bat is enough to actually be worth that ninth pick. And on top of that, you have to factor in, is he going to be better than what you already have to make the leap to snag a guy that you're overdrafting a little bit? Because I don't think he's going to be there at 21. So if you like the 15th guy on the board, you have to take him at 9. So I don't think he's better than what we already have in Contreras, and I don't think he's further along than Contreras either. He might be around the same spot in his development, but I think what we already have is already better and just as close, if not closer, to the big leagues. So here's my thinking thinking on these two guys, because I I agree with you for the most part, right? Um, I know for certain that at early on in the draft process, the Braves were checking in on Stott, and that's kind of like we're like at the very least the early versions of their board had him as a potential option, right? What you hear now about Stott is like, and it's very it's very polarized. Some people think he can hit, but they don't they're not necessarily certain that he's going to stick it short. There's others that think he's, he'll stick it short, but they're not sure if he's going to hit and whether or not there might be some swing and miss with him. I think he would be perfectly fine. I have no problems with that pick happening, but I see, I hear enough different, like, like a wide variance in opinions on him that does make me wonder if there would be a consensus within the front office to make that pick, especially in the context of the other hitters available. Like, if you're going to take a guy that has like a wide variance of opinions on, it might be more worth it just to take Bishop because the upside, I think, is higher with Bishop. And, if you have some scouts that say, you know, they're not really sure about Stott and they're maybe not really sure about Hunter Bishop, then you just kind of, you maybe at that point you just go for the upside play. Uh, or if you're wanting to be more safer, you would take a Corbin Carroll who's a hit tool, a hit tool guy, a run guy that you think maybe down the line could really increase in value, but at the very least you know that you're getting a good player out of him. Again, I would be totally fine with the Bryson Stott pick because it make because he's performed really well at UNLV. He's put up real numbers. He has a track record of production. He has power. He, I I personally think he'd stick it short. I think he would be okay at short. I don't think he's like a a Gold Glover there or anything, but I think he's a, a good shortstop. Um, yeah, I think that too. Good, not great, not a Gold Glover, but more better than average. Yeah, I, yeah, like an above average guy. 
you know, a guy you're not upset to have in at shortstop. With Langoliers, I would when I'm looking, especially the first pick, I don't care what the rest of my what the rest of my organization looks like. I'm going for pure value, right? Now, I agree with you that I think based on talent, that 13 to 17 sounds right for Langoliers. I wouldn't be super upset with picking him just because Matt and I. For those who aren't aware, Matt and I've had this argument like like vigorously over the last few weeks about Langoliers because Matt's not really a big fan of him and. I personally think that the hit tool is a little better, but maybe the power isn't quite what, what Matt has him at. We both agree that he's a really good defensive catcher. That's just kind of a beyond reproach thing. And my feeling is that you want to make sure that you have all the positions that you – especially catcher. You want to have all the players you can get your hands on that have real talent because as much as we love William Contreras, and we do. We do really love – we've been we've been on him for a while. I think he's a borderline top 100 prospect right now. And he's one of the best catching prospects in baseball, which tells you all you need to know about this. You know, there's not many top 100 catching prospects, period. And that he's close speaks a lot to, to what he's doing down there. I don't think he's going to move particularly quickly. I think that if there are questions about him, it's going to be questions defensively and in play calling. And I don't think we have any of those any of those concerns with with Langoliers. I don't. The, the floor that the the. The threshold for how good of a hitter a catcher needs to be to get me excited for him as a catcher is lower than maybe it should be, but I would I would wager that I would be okay with him picking there picking him there in a vacuum. However, in the context of who of the bats we think they're going to be available, there are guys like the ones we talked about in Hunter Bishop, Corbin Carroll. I think I would probably pick Bryson Stott over him too. Uh, he's like the one that I like the least of those four, but I still like him if that makes any sense. Um, okay. I'm going to group these, these two college p- pitchers together because I, I like them fine. But the, the, to pick a pitcher in this draft for me, I do not like this pitching class, uh, particularly on the college side. I think that one of the reasons we're seeing some of these, these pitchers being pushed up is one, they, they have some real upside. There's no question about that. But also because the need for college pitcher, college pitching is always going to be there. I think that some of these guys would normally be picked lower in most other drafts. And they have enough warts that I'm not particularly interested in. That's Nick Lodolo and Alex Manoa. If we're picking an arm, I'm wanting real upside. And there are two other pitchers that I think are they're going to be around that I would rather have. Um, if the Braves were to go the Nick Lodolo or Alex Manoa route, what, what, what are your kind of thoughts on that? I have different thoughts on each of them, obviously. Lodolo, I would not be thrilled with. I wouldn't hate it, but I wouldn't exactly love it. I mean, he's a 6'6", 185-pound lefty with a ton of projection on him. I mean, he was a first-round pick, late first-round pick, obviously, out of high school by the Pirates, who ended up turning down the money to go to TCU. And he always so he's always had great stuff or at least very good stuff with a ton of projection. But the first two years he was there, he just didn't live up to his potential and his stuff. This year, the numbers have really taken a step forward, and he seemed like he might be going in that top six a little while ago. He got cold for a little stretch then, but he's since gotten back on track. I don't think he's going to be there. There's stuff to like about him, but it there's also reasons to not like him as the ninth pick in a normal draft. I don't think he's a top 10 pick. I mean, none of his stuff is 
truly plus today. And that's a little concerning for a college player. I think that he's still going to need to really fill in that body and gain some projection, especially with that fastball, before he's really able to be the kind of guy you'd even hope for with a top 10 pick. And even then, his ultimate upside doesn't really scream top 10 pick because he's not a potential number one. He might have an outside chance at being a potential number two, but he needs to really max out his ceiling to be that potential number two. He's probably a potential number three, most likely. So it's not really easy to love that pick, even though you can live with that because he is the best college pitcher in the draft. Now, Manoa is a little weird because at the start of the year, he was a borderline first-round pick, and I was actually quite a bit higher on him than anyone else was at the start of the spring. But then he dominated this year. He's just had a great year. And since then, he's really risen up boards to the point where there's even a chance he won't be there when the Braves pick at nine. I can't say that my feelings on him have matched what everybody else's have done. So even though I was once higher on him than everyone else, I feel like I'm now lower on him than everyone else, even though he's moved up for me. I just don't think he has a good enough third pitch. I think his frame, he's listed at 6'6", 260, and that's just listed. You could make the case he might even be bigger than that weight-wise. I would definitely think he would be bigger for what it's yeah. worth. He's a big guy. Uh-huh. And because of that, you're going to have to keep that body in shape and have him working extra hard at that. I mean, with the body, with the lack of the third pitch, and he's shown some issues with command at times where you do have some questions about that. There's real relief risk in him, and... I don't want to take a guy that I'm that worried about as a future reliever with the ninth pick, especially if he doesn't have true ace upside. I could live with some reliever risk in the top ten if you're talking about a guy who has the upside of a true ace, but Manoa just doesn't have that. Yeah, I'm with you on the. I, I don't think that his third pitch is particularly good, and I, I do worry about the body. And this is that's true of his like. Of guys in like, you know, Luis Gohara is another example of a big body guy. The, the, there are, there are some successes in terms of those types of pitchers, but there are also like a ton of failures because they, it was just like maintaining their weight, maintaining their command, you know, staying in good shape and kind of being able to stay athletic with that body type is not the best track record. There are certainly exceptions to that, but not something that really excites me. More importantly, again, in a vacuum, it'd be there's reasons to, you know, pick apart or like these guys. But in terms of the rest of the context of that pitching class, I would much prefer either of the two guys we we're talking to talk about next and Jackson Rutledge or Espino to those two guys because one, there's, there's, there's real ceiling. Uh, I know this is going to upset Matt, but I'm pretty sure that I prefer Jackson Rutledge because again, it's big time upside. He, he has a really tall, strong frame and he's throwing absolute gas. Again, there's, some track record, a track record concern there too, because the guys with his body type that throw that hard, they don't necessarily age particularly well, and oftentimes a lot of those 
those guys don't pan out, but I see real upside with him. Uh, and the other is uh, prep pitcher Daniel Espino, who I know that you're going to hear a lot about from Matt, uh, and I know he's the, a preference for him. But, again, with Espino, he has one of the best breaking balls in the class. He has the best fastball in the class. And you could, it wouldn't take as much convincing for me to pick either Rutledge or Espino, who have, like, these g- big, giant upsides. There's plenty of reasons to to knock that sort of, because again, there's been plenty written about the track record of high school righties that throw as hard as Espino does, how most of them, not all, but most of them have not panned out particularly well in the minor leagues, especially when they get on a pro schedule. But in terms of pure upside, like another good example is when Riley Pint got picked in his draft, I would have picked him 10 times out of 10 because again, that upside is so high. If everything clicks for Espino and all of a sudden he's throwing even if he's just throwing an average changeup, just an average to above average, something that can keep people from sitting on that fastball, like that's a kid, that's a kid with like front nine starter number one upside. Now there's real risk as to kind of how he'll be able to bounce back and forth between starts, especially pitching once every fifth day, which is very different from what he is from what he has been doing. But if I'm if I'm picking a pitcher, and I would prefer a bat in this spot, I'll be. I'll be frank about it. I would definitely prefer to pick a bat in the spot. But if the Braves are picking a pitcher, I want real upside with a real chance to be something special. And I only think that exists in Jackson Rutledge or Espino at nine. What are your thoughts, Matt? I Yeah, I completely agree. I have similar feelings on Rutledge as I do to Lidolo. I'd accept it, but I wouldn't love it. I mean, you hit on his frame. He's 6'8", 240, so he's obviously got that huge frame. And that's a concern right there. But he's also had a labrum injury. And guys that size that already have some physical injury history with that body, when a pitcher cannot afford an injury like that, that that's a red flag against him, even though it's not major right now. Is that labrum going to continue to give him problems going forward? And that's a real question. His track record of success is basically zero. He was at Arkansas last year, and he barely pitched. He did not pitch very well. The numbers were not great, but he was at least an SEC caliber pitcher, so it's not like the talent hasn't been there. And he was doing this against guys that were in last year's draft, this year's draft. He did not do well and had to leave there and ended up in JUCO this year. The numbers in JUCO were amazing. Obviously, he's doing that against Juco talent. And, I mean, if you look back a couple of years ago, the Braves drafted a third baseman out of Juco, Josh Anthony, and he put up video game numbers. I want to say it was 20-plus homers and uh, 20, 30-plus steals or something like that. I'm not looking at the numbers at the moment, but just something crazy. And then he went to Auburn and wasn't able to do anything. So you do have to question Juco numbers a little bit and not really read too much into them. Rutledge does have the stuff, though, so you do have to give him that. I mean, he's got the double-plus fastball easily. He's got a slider, which could be double-plus. It's at least plus. And then he's even got a curveball, which it's very inconsistent right now, but when it's on, it can flash plus. But obviously, he's got to really develop that change-up. It's definitely something that needs work he hasn't really used it much of course going up against the hitters that he has faced he hasn't needed it much because most of those hitters 
and this is also th- something that we're going to talk about with Espino, just aren't really capable of picking up his other pitches. So why even bring in that fourth pitch? And I'll get into that a little bit more later. But another issue with Rutledge is his command is very on and off. And I'm just not sure guys that size typically have issues throwing the ball for strikes a little bit more often than a guy who's in that six foot to six foot five range. So those six, seven, six, eight, six, nine guys typically have more command issues. I mean, even look at Randy Johnson, the all time greatest pitcher in that six, eight and up range. I don't think there's even any question about that. And how many years did it take before he was actually able to command the ball? The Expos gave up on Randy Johnson because he couldn't command the ball, and he didn't even start out dominant in Seattle before he really got going on his great, great stretch. But So you have those worries mixed with great stuff for Rutledge. So there's both positive and negative to him. Espino... You know my thoughts. I mean, he's the number two guy on my board in this entire draft. Not pitcher. Number two guy on the entire board behind just Adley. I mean, there's nobody else I'd rather have. I've seen a lot of prep arms in the past. I've seen some prep arms this year, including Jack Leiter as another first-round arm. Uh, just no comparison. The pitches that this kid throws are just unbelievable. That fastball with that 99 mile per hour speed and it doesn't always sit 99 it touches 99 and he's comfortable sitting at a lower speed but just the movement on the fastball in addition to the velocity it it's just a different kind of fastball than what you see even in the minor leagues there just aren't too many guys that have a fastball like that with both the velocity and the life the slider is just a huge weapon, and hitters just have no chance against that slider at the age that he's playing at right now. And then he's got a curveball, which has the makings of a true plus pitch. I mean, when I was at his start, he was just dropping that curveball in. It, it looked like it was going to be high to the batter, but then suddenly it just drops last second right in there for a strike. He was He was just able to place that right in and just drop it in, and batters were just defenseless. They did not even want to swing the bat. They just had nothing. No answer for it. He doesn't throw a change-up in high school, and I've talked to his coaches. They don't want to call the change-up for him. Why would they not want to do that? Because high school hitters are have a better chance against his change-up than anything else. They're not used to this 99-mile-an-hour fastball. So giving him a high 80s, mid-high 80s change-up would actually be a huge benefit to the hitter instead of Espino, whereas the pro hitter would actually help Espino a lot more. It's because these guys suddenly have a pitch that's in the range that their bat speed can actually touch. So that actually plays into why he hasn't used the change at all in high school. And from what I've heard, he has the makings of an average change. And I talked to Daniel himself, and what he told me after his very last start, is that he is going to spend the next few weeks working on that alone. He he knows 
that it's a weakness at this point compared to the rest of his arsenal. That it's just average, and compared to the rest of the arsenal, that is a weakness for him. So he knows that he needs to work on it. He knows who he is as a pitcher. And he also just has a great pitch ability, knows how to pitch. I, I know I'm going on and on about him, but, I mean, what I've seen... I don't see this in guys, even guys I've seen in low A that are among the top 30 prospects in their system. This kid is that special of an arm. I, I agree that there's a lot of talent there, and part of my feelings on him is that I would just prefer one of the bats at number nine, but this is going to be the part, before before I let you kind of talk about a few guys that for like the number, like the 21st pick, and maybe a few other, like a few other guys that are like later in, later in the draft, as kind of predictions, your gut feeling right now, who are the Braves picking at nine? Carroll. I think I, they're going to take Carroll. Uh, I'm going to say Hunter Bishop, but I think it's going to between be between one of those two guys. I don't think they're taking a pitcher. Uh, if they do take a picture, I my guess is that they take Rutledge. Just a blind guess right now. But I think it's going to be between Hunter Bishop or Corbin Carroll. I, I think that's what's going to end up happening. Uh, and, of course, what's going to happen is, you know, they're going to, like, you know, sign someone to an underslot deal or, you know, something crazy happens and we're going to look silly. But blind guess, best guess right now, I, I think I think the, those, those two guys are my finalists for sure. I say Bishop, you say Carroll. That, that sounds about right to you, but those are, the, like, the top two most likely. I think so. Yeah. And, uh, I don't think they've ruled out pitcher. I also don't think that it's what they're favoring at the moment. Yeah, it's, th- th- there's certainly other options, right? Like, and we talked about those options, but mm-hmm. if we're, our bet, in just in probability and kind of what we're hearing and kind of how the board looks like it's going to fall, those are the two guys. Now, everything changes if someone falls out of those top six guys or some, or weird things happen, then all bets are off. I don't think that's going to happen, but there might be some weirdness as to what the order of those top six is, but I don't think anything crazy is going to happen that's going to result in one of those top six guys falling. Um, but that's our best guess right now. Um, Matt, give us a few names for guys before we let the listeners go of some guys that we like for some of the later picks. All right, so obviously I'm just going to get right down to it right now. If you ask me what my ideal draft would be, it would be Carroll at nine. Espino at 21. Now, I don't think he's actually going to fall to 21, but if you're asking me for my perfect draft, he would be there at 21. I think there's a very small chance he's there, but I'm going to assume he's not going to be there. So if we're going to look at some other guys, and I don't think Langoliers is going to be there, I don't think Stott is going to be there. I like Gunnar Henderson a lot. I don't think he's going to be there. I like... Quinn Priester a lot. I also don't think he's going to be there. So you start to look at some other names, and there's a couple third basemen that I like. I like Josh Young of Texas Tech. He was a guy that was top five, top ten in the draft easily preseason, who hasn't really had the power show up quite as much as you'd hope this year. But he's a proven quality hitter. Uh, Cody Hosey from Tulane, who was tied for the national lead in home runs in Division One uh, about a week and a half, a week ago, until conference tournament play started. He's a guy that did nothing in his first two years, but has really broken out in a loud way since. And despite the fact that he's 
hitting so many home runs, he's really not striking out all that much. So there's a lot to like in his bat, and I think he would be a candidate. Uh, Tyler Alhan, the Florida high school player, I don't know if he's really a third baseman long term. I think he's kind of got that Michael Chavis. Is he a third baseman? Is he a second baseman? Is he possibly even a catcher? But he's just a great hitter, a great hit tool on him with good power. And I think it's plus hit tool. So that alone would get him considered for me. I'd also be looking at some other guys. Logan Davidson would be a guy I'd consider, even though I'm not sold in the hit tool, because all he has to do is get his hit tool to about a 45, and he's got the potential to be a superstar because that's just how good all of his other tools are. He's got that long, lanky frame where he could really add some weight and add on to the existing power. He's athletic. He plays good quality defense. He's got some speed. I mean, he can be everything that you'd hope for. I mean, that's really all that I'd be hoping for infield-wise. In the outfield, a couple other guys, uh, Maurice Hampton, the Tennessee high school player, the LSU cornerback commit, he's got huge upside, but obviously he's a little raw because of the baseball and football uh, mix. He's also got that football signability question. I mean, I think even though Kyler Murray isn't going to play significantly into things going forward for teams, I think that after he signed a contract and just suddenly backed away from it, it might have teams think twice before they really commit a very high pick to a football player, especially if they want to continue playing football for any length of time. Obviously, Kyler Murray is the exception to the rule, but... I do think that could have something in the thought process. Uh, that's really it in the outfield that I'd feel comfortable with taking at 21 unless somebody was to fall. There's quite a few pitchers that I'd like that would be in that 21 range uh, other than Espino. Um, Priester, who I don't think would be there. But uh, none of them really stand out to me quite as much as Brendan Malone who has really good stuff, but it's not quite consistent. Even at IMG Academy this year, which is basically a school for athletes. So he's had great coaching, and the coach at IMG is actually the former coach who was at Pitt University of Pittsburgh for 20 years. So it's not like he doesn't have very good coaching around him. And this coach recently put out a first-round pick to the Blue Jays uh, a couple of years ago at that. So the fact that he hasn't been completely consistent with his stuff definitely strikes me as a slight concern with him, but obviously the upside's huge, so he would definitely be in play for me there. Um, so th- there, I think there's a few names beyond that that like we've are interested in uh, Kyle McCann's a name that I've heard and I know you've heard too. Uh, I guess the question I have with just him before we let the listeners go is, what do we think the odds are that Kyle McCann is going to be available in the second round for the Braves? I want to say probably about a forty to fifty percent chance. I think anyone that believes in him as a catcher, defensively, I'm talking is going to be willing to use a high pick on him. That bat, if he's able to catch, 
is huge. I mean, if there was no doubt that he's a catcher, he's possibly a top 10 pick. I mean, there are some questions about his hit tool because he does have quite a bit of swing and miss, but the power that he has at catcher is just ridiculous. And you'd have to really consider investing a first-round pick if you liked him enough to make sure you get him because I really don't believe he's going to be there at 60. I think if you want to ensure that you get him, that you'd have to take him at 21. I don't think he belongs at 21, but I think if you like him enough, you have to take him at 21 to ensure that you get him. That Those are my thoughts on him. Yeah, I agree. He's a, he's a guy that's interesting to me. I really want to see what happens with Cameron Meisner, too, just because it's it's loud tools and you, the, there's, like, really high potential, but, like, the, the production this year hasn't been very good, and he's still kind of learning how to play baseball. And, you know, I don't think burning a first-round pick on him is necessarily a good idea, but if his stock has fallen enough, if he's, like, hanging around – in the second round, I would be all about popping him, but I, I feel like that there's a team that's going to, like somewhere in the comp rounds or something at the very least, is going to try to like take a bet on the fact that he has all those tools going for him and he could end up being like, you know, again, very much a lottery ticket type because uh, he's a guy that we've liked a lot. He had a first round grade coming into the year, just the production from his, out of Missouri this year just hasn't been very good. So, um, anyways, guys. That's all we have for you this week. The next time you hear from us, there's going to be a bunch of new Braves prospects to be di- for us to be digging into. And we're going to be talking about the, the results from the draft. Uh, make sure you're looking over on TalkingChop.com. We have a ton of draft coverage planned for you guys, uh, including, you know, some kind of some basic stuff. You can already find like a draft primer that's over there and a lot of other preview type stuff that Matt's been writing position by position. You know, here's all everything that you need to know about the draft prospects that are coming out. Uh, the day of the draft, we're going to be kind of, co- Paring down what we think what we think will happen, It'll be, and we'll also having coverage throughout the the draft itself, uh, including the, as the dra- the picks happen and what we think about them. And obviously, next week you'll be able to get a sense of kind of how we feel about how the draft went uh, from in, in in its completeness, not just the the top two picks, which is what most people would care about, but for Matt and I both, we really like looking at the whole the whole draft and looking at some of those mid to late round picks about guys we like as well. So make sure you're following the the podcast on Twitter at Road the Number Two Atlanta, or that you and you have subscribed to the Talking Chop uh, podcast on the on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever your whatever your preferred venue for podcast is. Make sure that you are subscribed to Talking Chop. You'll get this podcast as well as the Talking Chop podcast. It's great. And until next time, guys, we'll see you on the road.